What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We're glad to have you with us today. We're glad to have you with us any day that you can join us. It's our program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to take a swing at that question, give you the answer uh, straight from the church's mouth, as it were. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Columbia, the country, well, you can just uh, dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a second. The email address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms live right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that, and he'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today's show. I think that would be fantastic. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. So uh, here is a question that came in just this morning, literally just a couple of hours ago, and this is from Karen. Karen says, my mother is homebound and has not been able to make a confession for several years. She had a stroke seven years ago. It has affected her memory and her speaking. She asked a parish priest what happens if she can't remember her sins. He didn't give her an answer. She's 95, watches mass and rosary every day with EWTN. What can I tell her? Oh, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate the question. So anything that she cannot remember... She is not canonically bound to confess. So that's the good news. I mean, yeah. really, there's, there's, there's no problem here at all. You're only bound to confess sins that you have conscious memory of. If you have no conscious memory of them, you're not bound to confess them. And let's say you've committed, I'm just pulling this number out of the hat, let's say you've committed 50 mortal sins since your last confession, and you can only remember one of them. And you go to confession and you confess that one and you get absolution. Guess what? All 50 get absolved. How about that's that? the teaching of the church. That's awesome. Yep. All right. And uh, thank you so much, Karen, for your email, your very thoughtful email on behalf of your mom. Here's one now from Maureen. As Catholics, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God, the creator of the universe, chose to become man. Why then does he have the name Jesus? Why not God? I know we say Jesus is God the Son. Can this be explained, or is this the mystery of the Trinity, which we believe on faith? Thanks, and God bless you, Maureen. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, as a person of the Blessed Trinity, we refer to the second person of the Blessed Tr Trinity as the Eternal Son, S-O-N. Okay. All right. Okay? Or we might refer to him as the second person of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Incarnation tells us that the second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature. So uh, the second person does not have a human nature from all eternity. Uh -huh. 
human nature is conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and is born in time, and it is that particular human nature that it is assumed by the divine person. Well, the, the, the person who lived in Palestine or the Holy Land 2,000 years ago and died on the cross is both the, has both the divine nature and the assumed human nature. And that human being was called Jesus because his parents, his human, his human mother gave him a name. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but, but the, who we know as Jesus has a beginning in time, not the divine nature, which has no beginning in time, but the human nature definitely has a beginning in time and, you know, could be a little baby and wrapped in swaddling clothes, which is a fancy way of saying first century diapers, uh-huh. and, uh, and could grow and go to school and experience things and, and could even suffer and die. That has a name. That's Jesus. Okay. Maureen, thanks so much uh, for your email. Fascinating one now from Michelle Lynn, who says, Dr. Andrews, recently as I was sharing the dogma of the Assumption of Mary with a friend, she asked me the question, why wouldn't at least one of the apostles have written her death and Assumption, such a big event, into the Scriptures? I must admit, I've always wondered the same thing. Would you mind sharing your thoughts about this? Yeah, thank you. So in John's Gospel... He tells us that Jesus said and did many things that were not included in the gospel. Uh, and that if you wrote down everything that Christ did, it would require more books than could fit in the world. But that these things that he wrote were written so that you might believe that Jesus was the Son of God and by believing have life. The point of the gospels is not necessarily to give a comprehensive account of every Christian dogma. I mean, clearly the Gospels don't include many of the events, the events that would later be recounted in the book of Acts, although those are highly pertinent to the being of the Church. Now, the Assumption of Mary would be something that, you know, took place after the ascension of Christ, some, you know, some length of time, and perhaps even, you know, after she'd lived a full human life and died, if you follow the Eastern tradition about her dormition. Uh-huh. And so that, that was—it's uh, part of the Gospel in a broad sense— uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't, that's not what the gospel writers were aiming at. Okay. Well, there you go. And then this one from Joe. Why do Catholics, as expressed in the Memorare, always express themselves as standing, quote, sinful and sorrowful if they believe they're redeemed and walking in grace? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, for most of us, uh, we haven't reached the kind of perfect sanctity um, where we could say, I am free of all sin and all attachment to sin. But that's the goal of the Christian life. Most of us are not there. Now, the canonized saints got there before they died, some of them probably in the very last moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but even they would still bemoan their sins. I mean, St. Francis used to weep because of his sins. Now, that doesn't mean that he was actively sinning at the time of his weeping, but he, you know, he was sorrowful for the things he had done in the past. Sure, sure. And, uh, and you know, also I would say that this, this reflects a particular spirituality and a particular devotional tradition in Catholicism, and I would not necessarily advocate that uh, very self-deprecating frame of mind if, for example, someone were deeply scrupulous or depressive. I might, I might 
ask them to focus more on, say, the mercy of God and the righteousness infused into us by His grace. Makes sense. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we're going to talk with Dan in Virginia, also uh, Alexandra in North Jersey. Lines are open for you as well, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called a communion on this uh, Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We have three lines uh, busy, three lines open at 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? Today would be a great day to get that question answered. By golly, let's do it. 833-288-3986. Let me tell you about something uh, wonderful available from EWTN. It's one of our online learning series in his sandals. You can discover the beauty, truth, and goodness of the church with the EWTN online series. You can delve into the riches of the faith and grow closer to the Lord with free videos and study guide. We invite you to be still and sit with the Lord through In His Sandals, online video reflections with our own chaplain, Father Joseph Mary Wolf. Enroll in our courses today at learningseries.ewtn.com. Learning series at, uh, whoops, learningseries.ewtn.com. There you go. All right. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Dan in Virginia, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, Dan, what's on your mind today, sir? Thank you, Dr. Dan, for meeting with me, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, my, 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 um... I have a dilemma and a question. My dilemma is that I'm going through the RCIA class at my local parish here in Burke, Virginia, and I'm, you know, and I'm very eager, hungry for learning more. And I've been been um, learning the heck of a lot in my RCIA class, um, and and I'm very eager to convert. Um, Catholicism from being 21 years uh, and member of a Baptist church. However, however, my wife and my son are not supportive of my decision. Um, I mean, I'm 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 trying very hard to be loving and supportive of them. And their feelings, however, they're not supportive of me. Um, they feel like I'm breaking up the family. Um, um, and I, the reason why I'm doing this because I want to lead by example. And so I'm not sure. I mean, I've been praying about it, but I'm not sure what else I can do except praying. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, and I would add that you are in good company because Jesus talked about you and your situation, specifically in Scripture, when he says that there will be many people who are, you know, their families will turn against them when they want to follow me, you know, with their whole conscience and their whole mind. So that, I mean, this is, he anticipated this sort of situation, family discord, or as a mm-hmm. result of trying to follow the kingdom of God in one's life. That's something Christ talked about. Um, now, here's, uh, here's my counsel for you. Um, it, when you were a Baptist, you may have heard the story 
of Martin Luther, the Protestant theologian who first broke with the Catholic faith, when he was at the Diet of Worms, and he was called upon to recant his Protestant beliefs, he said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, Warren Bainton, Roland Bainton once wrote a famous book about Luther, a biography of Luther called Here I Stand, based on those words. And most Protestants that I know that know their own history look back on that moment as a real kind of watershed moment. They're very proud of Luther for standing up to what they understood to be papal tyranny and pleading his conscience held captive to the word of God. Now, it might surprise you and might surprise others to know that of all the things that Luther did after his break with his church, uh, that was probably the last most Catholic thing he did, hmm. right, in this respect, that the Catholic Church, unlike many Protestants today, uh, teach that we have, an, we have an absolute duty to follow conscience. And so even though we regard Luther as having been wrong, we think his conscience was badly formed, mm -hmm. the decision to follow conscience, Luther once said, to disobey conscience is neither right nor safe, that's a Catholic doctrine. And so whenever I talk to people in your situation, I always encourage them to tell their families, I have to follow my conscience. Now, you know, you celebrate Luther following his conscience. I'm following my conscience. For me to not do what I'm doing here and join the Catholic Church would be to disobey conscience, which, as Luther said, is neither right nor safe. Yeah. Right? I'm not insisting that you follow my conscience. I'm, I, ha I have to follow my conscience, and if I don't, I can't be—I can't hold myself forward as any kind of exemplary Christian to my family, right? I mean, how can I tell you to do what's right if I myself do what I think is wrong? I can't do that. It doesn't, want, doesn't function. Right. I am impotent as a Christian if I don't follow my conscience, so I'm going to deviate here tell you a little story from my own life. I was once in your shoes. I was a Protestant becoming Catholic. My family was not supportive. And I dragged my feet on becoming Catholic, which you, maybe you're thinking of doing that. Maybe I'll drag my feet because my wife doesn't want me to become Catholic. Well, I dragged my feet for a good year or two, didn't become Catholic because my family did not want me to. And what happened is I, I, I didn't just go back to being a happy, clappy Presbyterian, right? I, I went back to being a very unfulfilled Presbyterian who would go to Protestant worship services and sit in the back of the cry room and drink coffee because I, I was utterly emotionally disengaged, because I no longer believed Presbyterianism, and I, I couldn't make myself believe it and didn't want to. And eventually my wife, who did not want me to become Catholic, said, well, you might as well go ahead and become Catholic, because you're, you're pretty worthless right now as a Presbyterian. <laughs> you know? That's not a situation you want to be in. No, right? no, no, no. You, you're not going to be a vigorous, moral human being unless you follow your conscience. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two is that you absolutely should not try to coerce uh, your family members into following you. And it's probably too much even to expect for them to understand and appreciate what you're coming from, where you're coming from. So your statement that they don't support you, but they expect you to support them, that's, that's inequitable, that's unjust, that's unfair, that's unbalanced, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is one of those things where you have to focus on what is within your control, and that is your obedience to conscience and not on what's not in your control, and that is your wife and your son, right? And so the proper disposition to take towards them, in my judgment, is one of, uh, of sacrificial, unqualified support and affirmation, not a word of criticism, not a word of self-defense, uh, but exactly the kind, of, uh, the kind of gospel humility 
and uh, and self-sacrifice that Jesus simulated. Isaiah tells us that that a smoldering, a bruised reed he did not break, and a smoldering wick he did not snuff out. Hmm. That he had meekness to the ultimate extreme, right? And uh, and that needs to be your disposition: a completely meek, uh, malleable, um, utterly patient, totally affirming, um, loving, accepting disposition, knowing that you will not receive the same in kind. Is that helpful for you, Dan? Yes, uh, you know I've I've I've. Uh, you know, I wanted to become Catholic last year and wanted to go through the RCIA class here, but I, when I was talking to the local priest, the local parish, you know, um, he advised me to wait a year, which I did, and then um, maybe they would turn around. Well, they haven't. So I decided, you know, I, I, I mean, I, when I received communion at the Baptist church, I mean, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't, uh, uh, I mean, it's more than a symbol. It's got to be the real presence. Sure, sure. Right. So you're, you're, you've pinpointed one of the principal motives for people to convert Catholicism, which is they come to believe in the truth of the real presence and the truth of the sacraments in the Church founded by Christ, guaranteed by apostolic succession, and they won't accept substitutes. Dan, that, uh, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. It's called to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Alexandra is a first-time caller in North Jersey listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Happy New Year to you, Alexandra. What's on your mind today? Hi. Happy New Year. I really enjoy your show. Thank you very much. Thank you. My daughter is uh, 15. She goes to a public high school. She's got great friends, great group of kids. Mm -hmm. Yesterday she came home and she said, Mom, at lunchtime we had a discussion on religion, and she was questioned on creation versus evolution. Um, My husband and I did the best we could. We explained that uh, human time, 24-hour period for us, is not the same necessarily for God. We went into that we believe some of these things on faith. But other than that, we didn't have a whole lot to give her. Can you help me as far as what I can maybe give her to read Absolutely. or to listen to? Or Absolutely. Whatever? Absolutely. I can totally help you. So first of all, let me give you a resource. Um, and, uh, and I want you to write this one down, and you can give this to your daughter. There's a website that I'd like you to visit. And the title of the website is Thomistic, and that's as in St. Thomas, Thomism, you know, the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomistic, T-H-O-M-I-S-T-I-C, ThomisticEvolution.org. Uh, this website is a, is a ministry of Father Nicanor Austriaco, who is a Dominican priest and theologian uh, who teaches at... Um, Providence College in Rhode Island. He is a Catholic priest and ethicist who's also a, a working biologist, Ph.D. biology and biology professor. And it is an entire website written in a very approachable style on how to reconcile uh, the Catholic doctrine of creation and, and uh, uh, the, the, the life of our first parents with what modern science tells us about human origins and the evolution of species. So go to that website for greater detail. 
I now want to give you some principles that are deeply Catholic principles that would address this issue. The first and most important one is the Catholic dogma, that is to say this is the, the highest category of belief, that faith and reason can never be in conflict. And, and that means that if, uh, if I learn something reasonably to be true— Right, so so the, the scientific or philosophical research can demonstrate that something is the case. Then, then I must read the data of Revelation in a way that does not conflict with that. Mm. Right now, that's the opposite of the way a fundamentalist works. A fundamentalist Protestant, if he if he reads Scripture and believes that it says one thing. And then he learns from science that something else is the case. His disposition is to say, well, then the science is wrong. That's not the Catholic's disposition. The Catholic says, if I am certain of something being true, then it's true because all truth is God's. And I've made a mistake someplace in my theology. Now, at the same time, if I know for a fact that something's true in theology, then that can inform the way I do science. right? So it works both ways but not the way the fundamentalist. The fundamentalist just takes his naive understanding of the Bible, says that's correct, and anybody that contradicts it is wrong, and then he throws out natural science. Catholics do not do that. That's really, really important. The other thing to keep in mind is that when the book of Genesis, the first three chapters, talks about the question of human origins, fundamentalists read that as if it were a comprehensive account of everything you might want to know about um, you know, human prehistory. That's not the way Catholics read it. So we don't think that the book of Genesis is exists, for example, to give us a comprehensive account of human anthropology or biology or geology, uh, you know, or, or what have you. That the text primarily exists to give us a theological perspective on man's relationship to God and one another and to the problem of human sin and the need for redemption. And uh, Pope John Paul II, when he wrote his theology, the body, early on about the second or third lecture, I can't remember which, uh-huh. makes this point explicitly. He's talking about the first three chapters of Genesis, and he says the point of this is not so much to get a grasp on man's theological prehistory as it is to understand that it recounts perennial spiritual conditions that afflict all of us and need to inform our, our moral lives and our spiritual lives today, right? Uh, the Catholic Church has a philosophy of understanding the Bible, that the Bible has a literal sense. That's what we you know, read off the page. Mm-hmm. But the real significance of Scripture falls in what we call the spiritual sense. And that is the, spin- the, the sense of the Bible that connects us in our relationship with God and to Jesus. And we can discern a, a moral message in the Scriptures. We can discern uh, an allegorical or symbolical meaning in the Scriptures that point us to Jesus we can discern a message in the Bible um, that has to do with the transcendence of our own of our own uh, uh, immaterial soul and our aspiration and longing for for eternal life and immortality, and and those senses of the Bible transcend the literal. The fundamentalist gets gets bogged down in the literal. The Catholic wants the, tra- the text to actually become spiritually transformative for him, so that he's changed into Jesus's image and likeness. Approaching the Bible that way, with a sensitivity to the spiritual meaning of the text, um, is just taking it in a whole different direction. Where questions about, say, you know, the age of the Earth, or you know, did humans coexist with dinosaurs and so forth, they they cease to be spiritually relevant. 
right? That, that really has very little moment, really, little, really impact on the question of my personal relationship with God and gets me off track, away from the mind of the sacred author. Um, when it comes to the actual theological history, the actual anthropological history, um, uh, if, you t- if you understand humans descended from a common uh, first pair, Adam and Eve, uh, there are lots of ways to reconcile that with uh, with what we know from science about human origins and evolution. I'll, I'll give you one theory. I'm not saying this is the definitive theory. It's one way to do it. Um, Adam and Eve uh, are the first human couple into which God infused an immaterial soul, but they have a biological prehistory that could go back ages upon ages. Another way to look at it there. Alexandra, thank you so much for your call. In a moment, Jason in Rapid City, Linda in Dubuque, Iris in Jasper, Indiana. Two lines open at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's Call to Communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We have two lines open at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833 833- 288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Aperio Radio in Sheridan, Wyoming, now celebrating nine years with EWTN. Congratulations to Gregory Marshall and everybody there at KHMA from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now for Linda in Dubuque, listening on Aquinas Radio. Hello, Linda. Happy New Year. What's on your mind today? Oh, happy New Year to you too, both of you. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, so, the other day on the radio, I heard uh, a, a different um, person talking about. Um, well, he happened to be talking about the resurrection and how that is, you know, one of the the bedrock uh, beliefs um, for Christians. And but what he said was uh, regarding the resurrection is that. Um, I guess he was saying that it was provable, that there was an empty tomb. Um, if it didn't happen, then the Romans uh, or the Jews would have been able to find Christ's body. Um, so he he was basically saying this is an argument that you can use um, as a proof of Christianity, that the resurrection happened, it, it's a historical fact, and... Um, I just wanted to have you maybe expound on that um, because you're so good at explaining these things. And I don't know if that really is tr- a true statement. That I- yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So if the question is, is it a true statement that Jesus rose from the dead? The answer to that question is yes. If the question is, is it true that the resurrection is something that can be demonstrated historically and that that can serve as an apologetical foundation for the rationality of Christian faith. The answer to that question is also yes, but with a qualification. So uh, here's the traditional argument for the historicity of the resurrection. And your friend has mentioned some of the elements. Um, The first one would be the fact of the empty tomb. And uh, all of the early witnesses to the Passion of Christ acknowledged that the tomb was found empty on the third day, and, and uh, you know, this is from divergent sources that, have, that differ in other respects. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't all have the same account of the resurrection, but they all agree on the fact of there being an empty tomb. And 
Um, I've been there. It's empty. And, and, and you know, <laughs> higher critical scholarship in the New Testament would, you know, suggest that they're actually reporting different oral traditions about the same fact, just the way, you know, two different witnesses can see the same crime scene and come away with different facts, but they, under, they, have, they, they agree on some of the essentials, yeah. right, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead was, was absolutely essential to early Christian kerygma, the early Christian proclamation, and the detractors and naysayers of Christianity had every reason to want to disprove that and every opportunity to do so if they could lay hands on the body of Jesus. So the fact of the empty tomb seems fairly well established. Um, the next fact to contend with would be the fact of the resurrection appearances. Again, uh, the early witnesses all agree that the disciples claim to have seen Jesus alive after uh, after uh, finding the tomb empty. They had they had uh, interchanges with him, verbal interchanges with him. Uh, St. Paul also claims to have seen Christ alive and gives testimony that uh, 500 of his contemporaries saw Jesus alive. So there's a fact of people claiming to have seen Jesus alive after he was dead. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and as N.T. Wright, the Anglican biblical scholar, points out, the idea that the resurrection would occur in time rather than at the end of time, or the idea that um, uh, you know that the Messiah would die and rise, was were not expectations that were common in the Jewish world. So it's not like there was some sort of antecedent probability that the disciples would happen upon this explanation to explain this, the facts. They weren't they weren't disposed to that particular assemblage of facts. They had different expectations as uh, as Second Temple uh, Jews. Um, and then the third fact. Um, which it, it first seems so blindingly obvious that it's, it's hard to contemplate that, that it stands in need of explanation until you think about it, and that is the fact of the origin of the Christian faith. Namely, um, something had to happen to get Christianity off the ground, and, and within his own lifetime, Jesus was understood to be a Jewish prophet, perhaps the Messiah by some, um, operating very much within an understandable, recognizable social, cultural milieu. I mean, people had expectations about what Judaism at the time looked like, about what the coming kingdom of God looked like, and uh, and it didn't take long after Jesus' death before a new movement emerges within Judaism that um, that uh, that is distinct and has its own character and beliefs, and it's persecuted, and and yet uh, and it thrives and becomes what we know today as Christianity. Uh, what happened between the death of Jesus? and the origins of the Christian Church that explain that phenomenon. And, of course, the, the answer that the early apostles all give us is that, well, they saw Jesus our Lord, right? That's, that's what the contemporaries all believed was the thing that got the ball rolling, was the resurrection of Jesus. Sure. And, uh, and that seems to be the most plausible explanation for the actual origin of the Christian Church, church as such. So a, Christianity uh, did, in fact, happen. That's a fact. Um, there were people, contemporaries of Jesus, that did claim to have seen him arise from the dead. That's a fact. And, and, uh, and his body is not in the tomb. That's a fact. All right. So those are all compelling evidences for the truth of the resurrection. Now, do I, well, I use the word compelling lightly. Are they so compelling that a skeptic cannot find alternate explanations? No, they're not that compelling. And there, there are plenty of people who, who are aware of those facts and, and yet don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I think the, the, the way we think about apologetics, the way we think about giving evidence for the act of faith is the church calls the motives of credibility. If you are disposed to believe, we can produce arguments that will make your act of faith not just a sheer act of willpower, 
not just you know flying in the face of the evidence. We can we can show that the act of faith coheres with the evidence quite nicely, uh, but at the end of the day, faith is still a divine and supernatural act, and 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 requires God's intervention and an act of human will. So it's not like believing in the multiplication table. Once you've been shown the truth of the multiplication table, you can't not believe it. Yeah. All right, faith in the resurrection isn't quite mm-hmm. like that. So it's an argument, it's evidence, um, but it's not so demonstrative that, that, that no one can resist it. Linda, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Iris, a first-time caller in Jasper, Indiana, listening on Tri-State Catholic Radio. Hey there, Iris, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, um, thank you for receiving my call. And, um, well, um, I have two questions, but it's, uh, following is kind of the same thing. One is that... Um, I really want to forgive my mom of what she's been doing to me, because usually I'm supposed to be special and interesting. It's not a great phone converse, uh, a great phone connection, but uh, Iris wants to know, uh, how do I forgive my mom? Because the, the two of them have been fighting, and it's pretty tough for Iris. Okay, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Iris, I'm sorry I couldn't hear the rest of your question, but I'll do the best with what I've got. So, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that forgiveness does not mean that I stop feeling hurt. Yeah. Right? And when someone hurts you, uh, you can have all kinds of emotional responses— um, and and you don't have to stop feeling those things. You don't have to stop feeling hurt. You don't have to stop maybe feeling indignant if you feel like you've been subjected to some sort of injustice. Sometimes indignation is the proper response to injustice. You don't have to you don't have to beat yourself up for feeling bad or feeling angry or feeling hurt or feeling sad or feeling betrayed. All those things are quite normal, and and maybe an accurate reflection of what's really gone on. So what do, what do we mean by forgiveness? I think that's the really most important thing to settle on. And what, what forgiveness means, as I understand it, is that you come to a place in your mind where you are willing to, um, uh, uh, to be in relationship with your mother, um, uh, but in a just relationship with your mother. So it, re- forgiveness does not require, for example, that, um, that you subject yourself to abuse, right? Um, uh, uh, Let's say, for example, that um, in an egregious case, let's say you have a parent who who has stolen your identity and is using your identity to run up debts on a credit card in your name, all right? And, uh, And you're being taken to the cleaners. Forgiveness would not require you to, say, sign over your your, uh, your your credit and allow your parent to steal your identity and steal money from you. You know, you could you could you could cancel the credit card. You could even file a police report. You yeah. know, you could you could take steps to protect yourself in justice. You don't have to make yourself a doormat. Um, and uh, and when I say you know willingness to have a relationship, that means that you don't have to be willing to be related to her in some unjust way. You know, the aspiration here is that we have a just relationship uh-huh. where we each party is is given what they are due. I owe you respect, you owe me respect. And uh, and so you can you can sort of cordon off, if you will, a part of your heart or a part of your life 
and say, I'm not willing to be related to you here in this area because that's an area of my life where you insist on treating me unjustly and I don't have to submit to injustice. I don't have to, right? But I'm perfectly willing to have a relationship with you in these other areas where we seem to get along fine, right? So, um, uh, but I'm not going to let the feelings of hurt and betrayal that I may have experienced cause me to treat you unjustly, right? You're still my mother, and I res- still respect you, and I and I want to love you and be a good daughter to you. Um, but uh, and I'm not going to let my feelings of hurt get in the way of that. But neither am I going to let myself be a doormat. Iris, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let me tell you about a wonderful podcast that is now available on EWTN's Podcast Central. It's called Mamas in Spirit. It's a mini retreat in a podcast for Catholic women. They're talking about how God has converted their hearts and transformed their lives opening hearts to the boundless love of God. And by the way, on the most recent episode, you can check out uh, their Christmas greetings with the family and the kids. A lot of fun. You can hear Mamas in Spirit, as well as many faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates around the world, all in one place. All free at EWTN's Podcast Central. Visit EWTN.com radio and then click on the words Podcast Central today. Do check it out. We've got something like, oh man, between three and four dozen different podcasts. All kinds of wonderful folks. We mentioned uh, Mamas in Spirit, but you'll also find Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. You'll find Dr. Scott Hahn. You'll find uh, the Magnificat podcast. That just uh, was added to the family there. Podcast Central, an exclusively uh, exclusive uh, a presentation from EWTN. All right, let us go now to Elijah right here in Birmingham, listening on Guadalupe Radio, AM 1480. Elijah, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, I've got a question about sacred scripture um, and exegesis. Um, so in Acts chapter 8, when Deacon Philip is baptizing uh, the Samaritans, and then um, St. Peter and St. John come afterwards and lay hands, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. My question is, is this um, you know, scriptural warrant for... Uh, confirmation is sort of like the completion of baptism, or is this a distinct event in salvation history as kind of, you know, the first time that the gospel goes out to the non-Judean specifically? Yes and yes. (laughs) Both and. Okay. So um, Luke has a distinct pneumatology, a distinct doctrine of the Holy Spirit that's a little bit different from St. Paul, not contradictory, complementary, but still distinct. Um, Luke writes very much in the vein of the Old Testament uh, prophetic writers for whom the Spirit functions as uh, the source of prophetic inspiration. The Spirit would come upon people and empower them for some prophetic act. For the judges, it would be, you know, to lead the people of Israel into battle. Uh, for the prophets, it would be to proclaim the Word of God. And that, that's really the mode that, that Luke is using. He's thinking along those lines. And he's got, of course, the prophecy of Joel in mind, uh, which he quotes in Acts chapter 2, that in the last days the Spirit would be poured out not just on this or that prophet or prince or king or, 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 or priest, uh, but upon all flesh, and they would all prophesy and dream dreams and so forth. And so every time the Spirit comes in the book of Acts, 
uh, it, he seems to be accompanied by some form of inspired speech. It might be prophecy, might be tongues, might simply be speaking the Word of God with boldness. And, uh, and he comes in this empowered way in response to the apostles laying on of hands. Uh, it is with good reason, therefore, that the Church has always looked to these passages in Acts as the warrant for the sacrament of confirmation. Um, but, the f- but the way the narrative is structured, we see the Spirit falling first on the Church in Jerusalem, and then on the Samaritans, and then you know further afield on the Gentiles. And, uh, and it does seem, within the context of the narrative, to be a demonstration of the universality of the Catholic Church, and that these disparate types of people receive the Spirit, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. So there is both the warrant for confirmation, and there is something uh, about the account that, that tells us about salvation history. And, and this is the moment in history when the Church expands beyond the confines of the people of Israel to to its true Catholicity, to incorporating every tongue and nation and tribe. Elijah, thanks so much for your call today right here in Birmingham. Brian's watching us on YouTube. Brian says, I have trouble believing that certain things the Church says is a sin is really a sin, but I plan on trusting anyway and doing my best to avoid those things anyway. Is that good enough to be a Catholic? Hot dog, man. I wish more Catholics would do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great disposition to have. Wonderful. So, um, we're never in a position, I think probably never, to say I've perfectly assimilated and, and have rationally justified everything that the Church believes. In fact, first of all, I've learned everything the Church believes, and then secondly, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally uh, 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 convinced in my own mind after my own rational demonstration that these things are true. We're, we're like never in that position. Yeah. And, uh, and so we have implicit faith in the teaching of the Church because Christ found it founded it. And that means that I'm, I, I am disposed to believe whatever the Church declares to be revealed by God, and I may learn tomorrow of something the Church declared to be revealed by God that I didn't know today, and I'm already disposed to believe it because the Church says it. Mm, okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Brian, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Jason is a first-time caller in Rapid City, South Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Jason, uh, Happy New Year to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Happy New Year, gentlemen. I would like to uh, hear Dr. Anders talk about the difference between uh, body, soul, and spirit, because like when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We pray for the holy souls in purgatory. You know, at Mass, the priest says, Lord, be with you, and we say, and with your spirit. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I could explain the difference between soul and spirit. Specifically. Yeah, thanks. appreciate the question. So what we don't mean by soul and spirit is we do not think that this, rep- this refers to two sort of ontologically distinct categories, you know, as if, as if you could chop a human being up into three things, body over here, soul over there, spirit over there. That's the wrong way to think about it. Um, if you really want to get metaphysical, you want to get down to the ultimate nature of reality, uh, the Catholic Church understands the human person to be a singular organism— Right? We're, not, we're not three things stuck together or two things stuck together. We're one thing. We're a human being. And uh, the organism as such is, is organized uh, in such a way that it has both a material aspect and an immaterial aspect. And uh, the language of soul and spirit, when we, when we talk about the immaterial aspect or dimension of human existence as it relates to our relationship with God, then often we'll use the word spirit. When we talk about the immaterial aspect of, of the human person, 
uh, insofar as it refers to our capacity to be alive, uh, and that would include our capacity to live eternally, then we typically use the word soul, right? And so you talked about talking about the holy souls um, uh, or the suffering souls in purgatory. These would be the living souls, right, that are in purgatory. Um, when you're praying for souls, you're praying for human beings who have that capacity to live eternally. But again, soul and spirit don't refer to two ontologically distinct categories, but rather to one thing under two different aspects. Jason, thanks so much for your call. Here is Dave now, a first-time caller in South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dave, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, I have a problem with confession. I'm born and raised a Catholic. 76 years old. I do the church every Sunday. I do the holy days. Um, I've always had a problem with going to confession, even when we were doing it in grade school. I just have an issue with it. I will go to confession myself. Like I say, talking to God, I'll say some rosaries after I confess my sins to Him. But just going in that confessional, I just got a mental block. I don't think I've been to confession that way in at least 30 years, maybe more. Let me ask you a question, Dave. Do you have a theological objection to confession or merely a psychological block? I would say psychological. Okay, all right, great. So you don't have a problem with the theology. You just you just find it difficult to do. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. So I am certainly not going to judge you, Dave. It's not my job to judge your soul, and I you know, wish the best for you and, and your relationship with God, and I trust that God is going to be merciful to you. That being said, uh, my hope is that you, we can find a way around this psychological block, because you know, I'm not going to presume to judge you, but I do know that Christ gave us the sacrament of confession for a reason. It's what he gave the church first thing when he rose from the dead. He said, here, it says, gift, whoever sends you forgive are forgiven. He wouldn't have given that to us if it didn't have some sort of tremendous value. And in fact, in church law, every Catholic is obligated under canon law. There are exceptions, of course, but by and large, we're obligated to confess our known mortal sins in kind and number at least once a year. So I, I really want you to get to a place where you can fulfill that canonical obligation and enjoy the peace of mind that comes from priestly absolution in the context of the confessional. So there's, there's two things I want to offer you. One is an argument for why we need confession, and two, some practical advice on maybe how to overcome that psychological block. Um, as far as why we need confession, um, confession is a sacrament, and like all the sacraments, it's a sacred sign that actually conveys the thing signified. Now, why did God give us sacraments? God gave us sacraments so that we would have a tangible point of reference when we want to lay hold of grace. And that's important for our psychology, right, that we, that we be able to know for sure, for example, that by being baptized, I became a member of Christ. It's not left up to my subjective impression, like, I know I was baptized. That's when I became a Christian, you know. And in the same way, yes, you can go to God privately in confession, but when you hear the word of absolution and you know the promise of Christ, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, you walk out of the confessional with an objective certainty that your sins are forgiven. There's a peace of conscience there that's, that's just absolutely tremendous that you cannot get on your own. It's impossible to get on your own with the, to the same degree. Secondly, the act of confession requires an examination of conscience and an act of humility. And many people don't like confession because they don't like to tell another human being what they did wrong. I understand that. It can be quite embarrassing, particularly if, you know, we've been up to stuff. Um, and yet, humility is the path of virtue. It's the, it's, the, it's the first step towards 
uh, you know, the 12-step people will tell you the first thing to do is admit you've got a problem, right? And to actually be able to lay that in front of another human being really does require coming to terms with who you really are yeah. and, and, and overcoming pride, which really is the greatest of all the sins. Pride is the devil's sin. So if you can make an act of humility, what an opportunity to grow in virtue. So that's, that's just absolutely fantastic um, in, terms of, in terms of growth in the spiritual life. Plus the regularity of confession. If we go regularly to the sacrament, we begin to incorporate it as a habit into our life that we make an examination of conscience, that we make an act of humility, that we rely upon the grace of the sacrament, and it really is an, uh, an aid in the growth of holiness. So, um, and, then, and then finally, through confession, we, we receive the Church's verdict of absolution, which puts us in a fit condition in order to go to Holy Communion and worship in a worthy manner. And of course, in the Mass, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, purified of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. So so for all these reasons, it's really, it's really salutary and a good idea, and in fact, an obligation that Catholics go to confession on a regular basis at the very bare minimum once a year. Now, how to overcome the psychological block? Well, when we have a psychological block, the what the therapists tell us, the, the most surefire way of overcoming a psychological block is what we call exposure therapy. Put yourself in the path of the thing that you're afraid of, maybe a little bit at a time, more and more and more and more frequently until the block goes away. So the first time, you know, I remember reading a book one time about a woman who was obsessive compulsive in her fear of dogs. Couldn't be in the same room with the dog without really? being terrified. Yes, exactly. And so the therapist working with her, you know, first thing he does is says, well, here's a pillow that a dog touched, <laughs> you know, and let her get used to the pillow. And then we'd work our way up from there to being in the same room with the dog. And then we'd get within five feet of the dog. And then we'd get within two feet of the dog. And then finally we could reach out and touch the dog. And maybe she passes out from anxiety. But after she does <laughs> that three or four times, you know, next thing you know, she and Fido are best buds. I would recommend a similar approach with confession. I, I think that if you don't have a personal relationship to a priest, it's time to get one, right? Uh, reach out. Uh, usually the pastor of the parish is a fairly busy guy, but oftentimes they'll have a parochial vicar, an assistant priest that serves with them in the parish. Uh, uh, make an appointment. Go out to lunch. Uh, spend, start, start spending time with priests as human beings and get to know them. Uh, and then talk around this problem. Right, and say, I'm, I'm trying to get myself acclimated to where I can go to confession. Let me just start by having a conversation with you about my spiritual life, and we can work our way gradually towards the sacrament until I've, uh, I've reduced the anxiety enough that I can actually follow through. And then make a habit of it, and I think you'll find after a while that the fear totally goes away, and it'll be a very positive experience in your life. God bless you, Dave. Thanks so much for your call today. We could not get to Josie watching us on Facebook or Jeremy watching us on YouTube. We're going to answer both of those questions on tomorrow's program. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Looking forward to that program, the Thursday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Let's make it a date, all right? On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price. We hope you have a wonderful day as well. We'll see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.